Warcraft. Butters, you said you're on your computer all the time. Yeah, but I'm playing Hello Kitty Island Adventure. Butters, go buy World of Warcraft, install it on your computer, and join the online sensation before we all murder you. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead. Try. Welcome back, fans. Unfortunately, Zach can't join us, so I'm your host, Greg Bashansky, and joining us is back by popular demand is Kristen Zanero. Hi, guys. And also joining us is the supervising producer and story editor of Spectacular Spider-Man, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hello. Well, glad we're all here, and... Uh, we have something new to talk about. I was actually a bit surprised. You're writing a World of Warcraft novel? I am. I, I've written it, actually. Uh, it comes out in November. Um, it, uh, it's called uh, World of Warcraft Traveler, uh, the first book in a multi-book series. Uh, this one's called Traveler, book one, uh, Sea, Land, and Sky. Um, and it's pretty cool story set in the world of Warcraft, uh, universe of Azeroth. And, um, and, uh, it's exciting. It's been fun to write and, and, uh, looking forward for to people, uh, getting to see it in, uh, a few, in half a year. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. I've been enjoying your other work lately. Uh, Star Brand and Night, Night Masters has been pretty good, and I've already got the second graphic novel of uh, Kanan on pre-order at Amazon. Great. And uh, how did this uh, World of Warcraft novel come about? I mean, that was, uh, I'll admit it took me by surprise. I was expecting to see you attached to that property. I'm kind of geeking out over it a little bit. I've played World of Warcraft for years. Uh, you know, it was... Really, thanks to uh, a friend of mine, uh, Andrew Robinson, who I went to high school with and who I've worked on a number of shows. Uh, he's worked for me on uh, Spider-Man and Young Justice, and um, and I worked for him on Kaijudo. Um, and Andrew uh, now works at Blizzard Entertainment, which, of course, is part of the World of Warcraft people. And uh, he suggested me for the gig to uh, James Waugh, uh, and James uh, suggested me to Scholastic Books, and Scholastic hired me to be the writer. Cool. Well, I look forward to reading it. I've never actually played WoW, but I'll check it out. And um, speaking of your books... The good news I'm... about it is that, you know, if you, I mean, if I've done my job right, and I hope I have, um, if uh, you have played World of Warcraft before. Um, this should feel like a great expansion of the universe and a great exploration of it. And if you've never played World of Warcraft before, you shouldn't feel lost. I mean, everything you need to know will be explained in the book itself. And, um, and you know, any information that you may or may not bring to it just becomes a bonus. But the book should be able to, again, if I've done my job right, the book should be able stand on its own two feet. Well, now that you bring that up, before we dive into the episode, I'm curious, what is it like playing in a pre-established universe? I don't mean something you created like Gargoyles or adapting something like Spectacular Spider-Man or Young Justice, but it, it sounds like WoW takes place in a previously established universe in itself. Like Just like Star Wars Rebels took place in the Star Wars universe instead of being its own thing. What's that like? Um, you know, it can be challenging because um, particularly on uh, World of Warcraft, I did not come with a lot of pre-knowledge of it, unlike Star Wars. And even on Star Wars, um, you know, my knowledge is not nearly as encyclopedic as, as it would be, for example, on Spider-Man. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Star Wars, but I haven't never delved into it at, on the level that, for example, I knew Spider-Man prior to getting the job on Rebels, and same with Warcraft. Warcraft, I 
I barely knew at all, frankly. Um, but, you know, you're working with Blizzard, and so they give you the information you need, and then they, they're a great resource. So as I'm writing the book, I'm constantly emailing. I mean, first off, I emailed a ton of questions, and we met in person down in Irvine, and, um, and you know, you get as much information in advance as you can, and then you keep asking questions. And of course, we did multiple drafts of the book. I just turned in my second draft uh, fairly recently. And, you know, if I got anything wrong, um, believe me, they're happy to correct me. <laughs> um, and I want it to be right. You know, I want the information to be accurate. I want uh, the world to feel real. And they've done so much to create this, you know, so much world building prior to my involvement. I just want to be part of it and not be, you know, creating problems or contradictions or that kind of thing. And so it's a team effort and we all make it work. That sounds cool. And since you mentioned encyclopedic knowledge, I mean, if you ever ever get another Star Wars gig, you're actually sitting right now with a walking Star Wars encyclopedia. Hi. <laughs> I'm an ultra nerd. I mean, God, I've, I've devoted the better part of 15 years of my life to studying the canon that got blown up. <laughs> well, that was part of it, too. I mean, you know, we uh, expanded universe was becomes uh, Star Wars Legends, so it's not so much blown up as sort of pushed to the wayside to a different plateau. <laughs> and you know, we weren't shy on Rebels. If we wanted something from the EU, we used it. Um, but the thing about having that semi-fresh start that Disney gave us was that you know, not all the EU stuff is even consistent with each other. No, it completely and, contradicts it several times. Right. So, you know, there was no way it could all be true. So by making them all legends, then we can pick and choose what's true. For example, Lasat. I mean, Lasan and the Lasat, um, mm -hmm. with the Inquisitors. You know, there are elements from EU that are turning out to be canon. And down the road, I mean, I'm not working for Lucasfilm anymore, but down the road, if they choose to pull other things from EU and make them canon, great. And if they don't, those become or remain legends. And um, you never know which way it's going to go. So um, that's what's fun about having a semi-crush start. And again, you know, when you're doing something like Young Justice or Spectacular Spider-Man, which is, as you noted, Greg, a different kind of gig. You're not so much playing in the universe, but with it. You're trying to adapt it for a modern audience and for the medium you're working in. Um, that's a different kind of task, but it's not dissimilar to what uh, Lucasfilm is doing with the EU now. They're adapting and using the stuff that seems useful for their current plans, and the rest of it stays legends. Yes, from a writer's standpoint, you need to have most of it fresh, but you still retain some of the elements, which is part of what's making a lot of the newer stuff that much more interesting to newer fans, and at the same time still catering to some of us older ones that have been around for a long time. Yeah, it's cool. All right, we should dive into Persona, and I believe this episode is written by Matt Wayne and directed by Dan Fawcett. And it's a pretty notable episode. I mean, it's the first episode of the fourth arc of the series, and this is a question that I also had. I mean, when it comes to crafting a series, especially the order of the episodes for arcs and serialization, I mean, Gargoyles, he did tears and tent poles. How, how did you approach that here when or adapting from Gargoyles to Witch, which was a very specific order, Spec Spidey was a very specific order, even Young Justice and Rebels were a very specific order. Gargoyles was a little bit looser in places, but like the Xanatos Fox episodes, you had to watch in order. <laughs> and well, within I mean, one year. <laughs> Gargoyles, part of the issue with Gargoyles is that we were doing 52 episodes in a season. Um, and also that was something new for Disney to do stuff that had that level of continuity. I mean, all shows have some continuity. I mean, you introduce a villain when the villain comes back the next time, whether that villain is Negaduck or um, Glomgold or Fat Cat, you know, or Duke Igthorn, you know, you're not reintroducing the villain. The villain exists already, and that's an element of continuity. And so obviously you want 
you know, Fat Cat's first appearance to come before Fat Cat, for those of you who don't know, is a Rescue Rangers villain, but, um, you know, to come before his second appearance. After that, you know, does it make a big difference in some shows whether Fat Cat's second appearance or third appearance are aired out of order? Probably not. Um, I, you know, uh, does it matter whether Negaduck's second appearance or third appearance comes first? I don't, I don't remember. But the point is, is that on Gargoyles, that stuff matters. And for Disney, that was somewhat unusual. And we just happened during season one to be caught off guard by having one incredibly significant event, which was the gargoyles leaving the castle, um, happened to fall with an episode that uh, we had animation problems with. Um, so that that created uh, delays and preemption and reruns uh, because obviously we couldn't show the gargoyles living in the clock tower before we'd shown the episode where they moved to the clock tower. Um, so on Gargoyles in season two, that was that issue was sort of exacerbated by the fact that we had to do 52 episodes in one year. This is a huge quantity, I mean, immense. And so we didn't want to have to deal with uh, all the episodes forced to being aired in a very specific order when we had that quantity of production going through and no experience with that ever mattering before. And that's why we created the tiers and tent poles system for season two. The difference is years later, I'm doing Spectacular Spider-Man or Witch or Young Justice. Um, the orders are smaller for starters, so that helps. And B, we've got some experience in doing this. Um, so we are able to air every episode more or less in order. There have been exceptions on which the network decided to air our Halloween episode early because they wanted it on Halloween, which you can understand. Um, and uh, so they aired it out of order, which wouldn't have been a problem if they had aired every aired us every week. We were originally geared to air the Halloween episode on Halloween, but the problem was that they had preempted us a few weeks, and so our airing schedule had fallen behind the uh, actual calendar. And so they still wanted Halloween on Halloween, but there were at least a couple episodes they hadn't aired yet, which, you know, created some problems for us. But this time we were sort of divorced from a real calendar on Spider-Man. We were just doing Peter's junior year of high school. And uh, at this point, I don't think anyone questioned the idea that those 13 episodes from season one and then later 13 from season two would air in the order they were supposed to air. And um, so we created uh, little mini arcs within the larger arc of the season and the even larger arc of the series as a whole um, for a couple reasons. One, um, to give it some format, some uh, structure is probably a better word. And two, because at the time there was a plan to cut these um, chunks of three and four episodes together into movies um, for DVD. Now that plan largely went by the wayside for all sorts of legal reasons um, in the what was then the ongoing uh, mutual battle between Sony and Marvel. Um, but it didn't, even when we found out that wasn't the case, it didn't change our desire to maintain this basic structure. So this became our fourth, this became the beginning of our fourth arc, which was basically our Venom arc. And of course, Venom's not in every episode, but it builds to Venom and it leads there. And we're going to have a lot of fun getting to him. Oh, yes. <laughs> This is also Black Cat's first, well, technically her second appearance, and she's a lot of fun. I love the way you depict her as a cat burglar. I mean, I know in the comics she's grown into a heroic character. I think she's back to being a villain now. I'm not entirely sure. I stopped following the Spider-Man comics a couple of years ago because they were a bit frustrating to me. But, but yeah, just um, how did you approach her? 
Well, I mean, you know, as with everything, the idea is to, you know, obey what we called and what we've talked about on this program before, the five C's. So we want her to look iconic. We want it to be classic and feel, but we want her to be contemporary. And then on t- adding into that, we want to create a certain cohesiveness and coherence to the, the Spider-Man universe that we were building in Spectacular. So um, the idea is that if you're Black Cat you're and you're a thief, you know, then that's what you should be doing. We wanted to, her to be sexy and sophisticated. Trisha Helper does the voice for Black Cat, and she's just fantastic um, and um, captures all that sort of um, alluring quality of the cat, you know, so to speak. Um, and, uh, you know, and yet does it in a way that's family friendly for the younger audience. So there's elements there that, that play older and elements that, uh, and yet nothing that's so overt that, you know, parents can't let their kids watch the show. Oh, we've got a parent right here. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed quite a few things snuck in with the Black Cat's dialogue, and I'm like, okay, I know exactly what that means. I'm laughing my head off, but I'm sitting there with my child, and she's looking at me wondering, why is mommy laughing? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the key to this, and people ask me, you know, one of the big double entendres of the show is in this episode. Um, which is when Black Cat says to Spider-Man, don't you get your goop in my hair, or you better not get your goop in my hair. Yeah, that and, was good. And, on the, and, you know, the key to that is that it's a double entendre, and people say, how do you get away with it? And I'm like, because it's a double entendre. And, you know, there's an obvious meaning, which is his webbing. Um, and when you have that obvious meaning for the kids, the kids don't even think that they're missing something. And of course, yes, there's the other potential interpretation of it, which is funny and cute and all sorts of things. And then people say, well, how do you get away with that? And, and, and I see other people getting things cut and I'm like, well, cause that's a single entendre. There's no other interpretation except the dirty interpretation. <laughs> um, and, and that's why writers get lines like that cut, you know, because the, there was no other way to, to view the line. Um, and so the line in fact is inappropriate. It's not really about censorship. It's about the fact that you're trying to create something that works for adults. Yes, but works for kids. And not just because economically, and this is, though this is true, you know, if kids aren't watching, then the show won't succeed, but because you want kids watching Spider-Man. You don't want to create a show about superheroes that leaves kids out of the equation, unless you're doing something very intentionally R-rated, like the recent Deadpool movie, you know, but if you're on broadcast television, which we were in season one on kids WB, it's got kids in the title. And of course you want kids to be able to watch it. It doesn't mean I want adults bored while they watch it. I want the adults engaged as well, but I've got to make sure I'm playing fair for the kids or else why am I doing it? It's Spider-Man, for God's sake. Yeah, it's like making a Superman or Batman movie that kids can't go see. Let's not talk about that place. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Down. Bad. I mean, that's been my personal experience because my daughter loves a lot of your stuff. And of course, I grew up watching Gargoyles. I mean, that's one of the major things I've noticed a lot about your writing is that it's so eloquently done that it caters to both children and adults. And it's one of the great things that I've been able to enjoy, even now with my daughter, who's now going to be four. Well, I mean, that's the goal. And so I'm glad we succeeded for you and your daughter. I'm glad we succeeded, frankly, for a lot of people. I have people who come up to me at this stage of almost all ages, you know, Gargoyles is, uh, is over 20 years ago. And so, you know, I've got people who come up to me who are 24. I got people who come up to me who are 28. I got people who come up to me who are 35. You know, I've got people who come up to me who are 40 or 50, you know, and they all enjoyed the show because we wrote it on layers. You know, there's plenty of eye candy for a little kid. There's, cute characters, there's explosions, there's great action, there's humor, there's humor that works for a kid. 
and yet there's was also stuff there that's more sophisticated that doesn't make a kid feel like they're missing something. They may not realize all the levels, and, and one hopes that the show is strong enough that they can go back and watch it and as an adult or even a teenager um, or, hell, even a tween, you know, see things that they didn't notice the first time through. But the trick is is to do it in such a way that is that they don't notice the first time through. In other words, that if they're noticing that they're missing something, if they're constantly looking at it and going, I don't understand what's going on here. Um, this is too complicated for me or this is too hard to follow. Or I can tell there's something going on here, but I don't know what it means, then they're not going to enjoy the experience. So you've got to write it on a level uh, and produce it on a level that there's plenty, there's a through line for even the youngest audience, maybe not two-year-olds, but yeah, three or four-year-olds, certainly six-year-olds, um, that they can just enjoy um, and not feel like they're being left out of the equation. Uh, and then again, if they want to come back to it later, which we hope they do uh, and hope they're able to, um, they'll notice things that they didn't notice the first time through because they'll be more sophisticated. And so that stuff will register for them. But if they're feeling left out from the first time they watch it, it's not going to work. A prime example of this for me is a Recently, I watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit again for the first time since I was actually a kid, and there was so much in it that I didn't get back then. I mean, it worked for me then, but now I just see so many <laughs> jokes and references that I wouldn't have gotten back then. Roger Rabbit's a great example. It's really a terrific movie. Um, I mean, Bob Hoskins is beyond brilliant in it, for starters. But in general, it's a great movie, and yeah, it's got plenty of stuff there for kids and plenty of stuff there for adults. And those two things aren't fighting each other. They're working in concert. Yeah. Just like your shows you always do. Well, at least that's what we try to do. Well, you succeed so far. And we've, you've got um, myself here as an example. Kristen is an example. And even Kristen's daughter, as she has mentioned. I mean, she loves her spectacular Spider-Man Blu-ray, doesn't she? She does. You gave it to her for her second birthday. And I re- remember both of us looking at her like we weren't sure and then she yells out spec spidey and i just kind of looked at her for a minute and like she read it on her own which amazed the living crap out of me and she became completely and utterly obsessed everything became spider-man <laughs> her entire room became spider-man after that that's great influencing a new generation greg <laughs> i gotta corrupt the kids what else am i here for What's the fun if you don't? <laughs> While we're on, coming back to the subject of Black Cat at least a little bit, um, how, I mean, she said she was working for a certain captain of industry. Any chance you might, I mean, I have an idea of who it might be, but. I'm curious myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm not telling you. Of course not. <laughs> you knew I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I knew. It was David Xanatos, wasn't it? Had to ask, didn't you? <laughs> no, 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 no. Guarantee you, it wasn't David Xanatos. <laughs> that's maybe in the maybe in the radio play universe it was. That's your wishful <laughs> thinking. Yeah. So, um, this is also the introduction of the symbiote, and um, I think it's a pretty effective introduction. I like how this will become clearer later that. Peter's thoughts might not necessarily be his thoughts. I mean, how did you um, go about interpreting a symbiote? Well, I mean, let's start with the notion that it's a group effort. It's not me personally. It's it's the team, um, you know. And the idea is that uh, that this is a truly alien species, um, you know, not uh, humanoid at all. It's uh, um, obviously a symbiotic species and a somewhat parasitic um and yet you know like any good uh symbiotic entity it it, while it it takes something from the host it also gives something to the host so you know those birds that pick the bugs off of rhinoceroses or something like that you know i mean they're helping out just as they're getting something out of it um and so 
the symbiote, it's less clear in this episode, but it'll become increasingly clear in the episodes that follow, feeds off of negative emotions. And, um, but it, in turn, it gives quite a bit of a power boost to, to Spidey. And because of the life that Peter's lived, on the one hand, and the life he's living, he has plenty of negative emotions to feed on, so it becomes a sort of uh, iterative thing where the more the symbiote's feeding, the more negative emotions Peter's feeling, and the more the symbiote feeds. Um, and so the symbiote falls quite in love with Peter pretty rapidly um, and does a lot of good things for him, particularly in the next episode, but also in this one. Um, it, you know, improves his leaping ability. It makes him stronger. It makes it easier for him to deal with getting in and out of costume. Um, it's webbing is got a greater range and seems to be stronger. Um, and seems to, since it's part of the symbiote, in essence, has its own sort of consciousness in terms of what it wants to and needs to hit. Um, it even corrects his balance. Um, so it's giving him quite a bit, uh, but it's also already beginning to take from him and, um, and encouraging his thinking down a certain path that's a little more selfish and a little more violent and a little more full of uh, negativity. This is also a case where I, at least I think the benefit of hindsight works because if you go back and read those old symbiote costs stories, those first Venom stories, it's clear at the time they had no idea where they were going with this thing. I mean, it was introduced during Secret Wars as a, I mean, it came out of some kind of device, and they didn't even know it was a living thing then, and... and No, we absolutely on this show in general benefited from the from hindsight, you know, I mean, from going, okay, if this is where we're going with this, let's plan for that. Again, going back to the five C's, you want it to be classic and iconic, but you want a contemporary version of it. And at the same time, you want to create more coherence and more cohesion. And what that means is, is that, okay, we know where we're going. So let's build to that point, whether it's with Eddie himself as an individual or with this symbiotic entity um, from outer space, let's, you know, plan ahead and build to it. And, you know, the same thing was going on for, the cook on the uh, art side. So you see the costume evolve. You know, it starts out as pretty much just a black version of Spider-Man's original costume. And then in the next episode, you'll see it start to break up. The lines start to break up and it begins to look more like the movie version. Um, I mean, the movie version starts to look more like the comic version. And so by the next, the, the third episode in this arc, um, it's just basically gone to the old black thing um, with just the white uh, spider emblem and the white eyes. Um, but, you know, when you see it in this in this episode, Persona, it's got all the white lines where the lines, you know, all the webbing that was there in, the, uh, in Spidey's regular blue and red costume. I really like that, by the way. I remember when the episodes were first airing, some people were impatient to see it look like the costume in the comic books, and Spider-Man 3 had just come out, and I think that let fed some some people were a little bit disappointed that in that movie it looked just like Peter's regular costume, but black, but um, I thought what you did was really clever, what you and Vic did, how it, it really just did. slowly... I, I, I don't want to take credit for that. That was Vic's idea, uh, and you know, obviously I was like, yeah, that's great. But, uh, I don't want it, to yeah. It for. Oh, it is. It's it's even greater when I stop to think that the economics of it all, because it's probably cheaper to just have one design throughout three episodes. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's three designs, so you've got to do turnarounds on all that, and um, so uh, it it definitely triples the budget. Mm, and you know, overseas it creates complications there too because they. They don't just sort of look at and go, oh, the black costume. They have to actually pay attention, you know, because multiple episodes are in production at once. So scene by scene, they have to pay very close attention to which version they're using. Um, whereas, you know, if it had just been one costume, it, it would have made their lives much easier. But 
you know, I'm not really in the business of making lives easier. (laughs) (laughs) Personally, I really actually love the three costumes because for me, I mean, I studied quite a bit of psychology once upon a time. It showed the progression of the suit and it's merging with Peter. And it also showed that steadily as the suit began to take its shape and its form, how it began to influence him more and more, his decisions, his actions based upon just his emotional state. That's it exactly. I guess I have to nail on the head then. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> also, I think it's about time we hit up Chameleon, who's um, finally being introduced to the series. He was Spidey's first supervillain, so it was cool to finally see him on the show. I like the voice Steve Bloom provided for him, although, let's be honest, I think sooner or later everybody would have played Chameleon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Steve's great doing the bass voice for Chameleon. Um, and, uh, you know, Chameleon obviously is a, a fun character. I think, you know, a little Chameleon goes a long way. <laughs> um, I wouldn't want to see him often because, uh, you know, the the constant questioning of is that who we think it is you don't want to have happening every time you have a scene. But I think, you know, if you can pick and choose your chameleon moments, whether the audience is aware of it at the time or not. Um, there's a, it's a strong, it's a strong character and a lot of fun, but we also try to be play fair with it. So, you know, when he's posing as Spider-Man, you know, just cause he's put on the costume and mimicked the voice doesn't suddenly give him spider powers. You know? <laughs> um, so he's got to use his assistance, um, Quentin Beck and, uh, Phineas Mason. Yeah, and Mason to um, to find ways to mimic Spider Power, and so you know the audience isn't too fooled by this guy, um, which is good. You know, um, at least you're not fooled by him there. But I think you know you see the scene where he meets the mayor while he's pretending to be Norman Osborn, and. I, you know, I like to think that for the moment, everyone is fooled because um, he's mimicked Norman's voice perfectly because, of course, we have Alan Rachins doing the voice in that moment. Um, and uh, and he looks like Norman, and then he goes into the bathroom, and you go, oh, that's not Norman, that's Chameleon. And so you want those sort of fake-out moments, but you also want to play fair. So, uh, you know, when he's being Spider-Man, uh, there isn't much of a question that he's the actual Spider-Man. And I love how, um, I love Clancy's performances, George Stacy. He's looking at this guy and going, wait a minute, he's too tall. And, you know, I'm not buying this. You know, he's sort of the voice for the audience there. I also love that with a totally a separate character design also coming back to what we said earlier because that's obviously a different build. I mean, it would have just been cheaper to use the regular Spider-Man model for that. Right. And again, that's just not us. You know, I mean, we did a model that was the larger build that, you know, so it was Chameleon in the Spider-Man costume. Of course, Chameleon's a pro, so the costume is uh, as close to the real Spider-Man as it could possibly be. But at the end of the day, Chameleon's a master of disguise, but he can't make himself shorter. Um, And he's taller than Peter. So he counts on the fact that most people don't really haven't really seen Spider-Man and, and that Spider-Man probably comes across as larger than life. And since he crouches a lot, it's hard to kind of know what his real height is. And suddenly Chameleon looks enough like Spider-Man to fool everybody, except someone who already knows Spider-Man really well and is less inclined to believe that uh, Spidey's gone over to robbing banks and... Yeah. Kind of like Jameson yeah. and Stacy argument. Yeah, Cr- crouch into uh, hide your height so that you can confuse the audience. Gee, what character have we already seen that with? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, the Norman scene definitely fooled me the first time because I could. Norman seems like the type of guy who would and probably has contributed to camp 
political campaigns. And uh, speaking of, uh, I feel sorry. I apologize in advance. Oh, I've no. got to ask. She looks like her. She sounds like her. Was Mayor Waters at all inspired by a certain presidential candidate? She wasn't really. I mean, it it, it really wasn't at all. Um, that would sound clever of me if it was. But really, we got the name Waters from Spider-Man lore and... Um, I just decided to um, make the mayor female because it wasn't a very memorable character um, in uh, the comics, at least not to me. I'm sure somewhere out there listening to your podcast, there's a Mayor Waters fan who's now furious. It's like, Mayor Waters was the best mayor ever in a spider But uh, you know there's somebody out on the internet for whom Mayor Waters is the greatest character ever. But... For most of us, it wasn't that memorable character, and I'm always looking to create more diversity. And so by making her uh, female in in our series, that gave me a little more diversity in the show, which I look for, uh, as I'm sure people know by now. And uh, so I wasn't thinking in terms of Hillary at all, um, which is not... I not meant to be a cut on Hillary either. It's just that wasn't in my head at that time. Fair enough. I guess it was in my head at the time back in 2008 because she was running then also the very spring that this was airing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's probably more on me than anything else. But but there we are. There we are. It was still, uh, and that was, I think, B.J. Ward playing her. Yeah. And George Stacy, by the way, I consider yeah he was in a Rhino episode, but I consider this to be his first real appearance. He's just great. Oh, it's a fantastic character, especially because I love how in this episode he noticed just every little thing that wasn't quite right, and of course Jameson is arguing with him, and it's like, no, that's exactly what he's like. Which I just... yeah, I mean the the dynamic between um, Jonah and and. Uh... Captain Stacy is terrific. I love it. Um, so we did a number of scenes across the series with the two of them because the way they played it, the way I, uh, Clancy and Darren played off each other was just so much fun. Um, and yeah, you're really getting two points of view on Spider-Man, but when push comes to shove, Jonah knows Spider-Man really well too. And I, I one of my favorite moments in the episode is where, um, sort of against his own will, Jonah confirms that the guy in the black suit is the real Spider-Man. You know, he wanted to believe the blue and red one is Spider-Man because he's the one stealing sh- stuff. You know, he wants that to be true, but he can't help himself, you know. <laughs> and And it's the black one that gets his goat. And it's the black one that he, you know, the black suit is the one that he confirms is the real Spider-Man, which to me is one of the funniest moments in the episode. This episode has fantastic dialogue. It Every, does. Everything Black Hat says, just about everything that uh, Jameson says, there's this one line about, how about 17, get out of my office in 2.3 seconds or I'll step you to a flagpole. <laughs> yeah. not, to mention the one, not to mention the one about soon he'll be caught, jailed, and run out of town, and Peter whispers under his breath, how can he be jailed and run out of... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Darren Norris became, uh, on that show, on that series, our secret weapon. I mean, not so secret, but I mean, you know, we could go to Jonah and have a great time, you know, give him this funny stuff, and he could get away. I mean, that line about, how about 17 words, uh, is just cheating. I mean, just flat out cheating. There's, you know... We wrote the line afterwards, and then wrote in what number, how many words it was by counting the line. You know? <laughs> um, and yet, and yet, Jonah's delivery is so sharp. That is Darren's delivery as Jonah is so sharp and so crisp and so funny that you just buy into it, and, and you hear Peter, you know, Josh Keaton with that confused, wait, how did you manage to? Never mind, you know. Um, and. You know, we just lampshaded with that. Like, how how did he do that so quickly? And then, uh, and so the audience just falls in with it. Um, but yeah, Darren is, you know, we had just an amazing cast in general uh, on the show. But, uh, uh, you know, 
Darren for me was always just this incredible standout guy who was able to turn on a dime from just cracking you up to breaking your heart. Um, you know, did great yeah. work as John Jameson also, but just was so good as Jonah. It really felt to me like you could really understand where this guy was coming from and it, that he was, you know, at times heroic, at times buffoonish, um, at times heartbreaking, uh, at times infuriating. Uh, Darren just was able to turn on a dime at any moment and give us any of that stuff, sometimes three or four different things all at once. Um, and just, you know, can't say enough good stuff about Darren Norris. He was terrific. Everyone's, everyone was terrific. Josh was terrific in this one. I mean, playing two different characters as well. I mean, and I just love how Chameleon doesn't quite nail the, so, the sort of thing Spidey would say. He's close, but... Not yeah. 100%. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's it's all... He, he only had a limited time to study Spidey, and, uh, you know, he's clearly not a local. <laughs> and... Um, and Spider-Man somewhat enigmatic in the first place. Um, and so, yeah, and Josh, likewise. Uh, I mean, again, Josh, the whole series revolves around Josh's performance. And so giving Josh the opportunity to play someone playing Spider-Man, play Spider-Man, play Spider-Man beginning to fall under the influence of the symbiote, play Peter, play Peter beginning to fall under the influence of the symbiote all that stuff in this episode and you can't do it without Josh Keaton. Not at all. Not at all. Although I do have one question and I apologize if it sounds like another spoiler question, but I'm just curious. I mean, Camille is speaking to a general and I'm wondering, is that someone or is that more of a throwaway? Because I don't recall a general in any of, of the Spider-Man mythos. Is that just a, I mean, obviously I believe the captain of industry who hired Black Hat was somebody. I'm not entirely sure about this general though. Uh, everything, I don't, you know, I mean, you know me, if there's an Amir, we're going to meet him down the road, so. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And, uh, back to George Stacy. it's also, in our voice, in the voice cast, it's great, because you don't hear it often to hear Clancy Brown play a good guy, you don't, I mean, usually you, I think of him, I think of Hakon or Wolf or Lex Luthor. Uh, you know, uh, often it's funny you say that because, uh, you know, my first sort of, you know, everyone's first impression of Clancy probably is the original Highlander movie where he's this incredibly over the top villain, um, and fantastic at it. But the truth is, is that, uh, I saw that and thought he was great, but didn't make the connection. And the first thing I really sort of, saw Clancy in where I focused on his name. So like I knew who he was as an actor was this relatively obscure television series called earth two. And he was a hero in that. So my impression of Clancy is as a hero. Um, and then uh, on gargoyles, we brought him in to play these villains. So of course, you know, he can do the, the villain thing, but um, he's, perfectly capable of playing King Faraday on Young Justice, Rhino on Spider-Man, George Stacy um, on Spider-Man, and uh, Katon and Wolf on uh, Gargoyles. You know, he can do all of that stuff because he's just a really great actor. <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> um, Very much you know, so. Yeah. If you're good, you, you do that yeah. stuff. He just did an appearance on Venture Brothers where he played a single character but got to sort of go in between. He was this retired villain who would just come out of retirement once a year to uh, arch somebody. And most of the time he sounded like Mr. Rogers. And then he would, and then, and then when he got into villain mode, he would go full Satan on everybody. It was actually a. Oh, I have, my I, God. I, the, I know who I you're had, talking about. <laughs> yeah, I had to post the clip on YouTube and maybe I'll send this to you just for the fun of it. It's really fun to watch and listen to. I did not register. Well, and I I, I've made use of that in, for example, I did a Men in Black episode called the Star System Syndrome, where we cast Clancy as this alien who 
looks like more or less the alien from the movie Alien. Um, and so you think through most of the movie, he's the bad guy. So you play on that sort of menace that Clancy can easily bring to the role. Um, and then, but, you know, spoilers in the end, we reveal that it's actually the Teletubbies who are the villains of the piece. And, and this guy's an innocent dupe, you know? And, uh, and so you also get that sense of the poor put upon guy by the end of the episode. And, and again, that's where you cast a guy like Clancy and he can give you that menace so that you fool the audience into thinking, yeah, this is the villain is played by Clancy Brown. <laughs> but by the end, like, no, he's not the villain. He's sympathetic. Um, was that the Hollywood episode? Yeah. I remember that one. It's been the years that I remember that. <laughs> that was a fun show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one other point to bring up. This was Peter's first kiss. Yes. Pretty much, yeah. Unless you count Aunt May. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, we're not getting into that place. <laughs> This isn't Game of Thrones. I was just about to say. <laughs> no, yeah, this is his first kiss, you know, and it, it catches him very much off guard. But that was a little, when we were making it, actually, we got very few notes from the feature people, but we did get a note on uh, that kiss. It came back and said, hey, that's, you can't do that. That's the Peter Mary Jane thing um, in the movies. That's really precious and special and we sort of wrote back and said look um just to be clear it's great that you guys did this in the movie and it was worked really well and we get how a big deal is made out of that in the third film um but in the comics it happened fairly often <laughs> um, you know that upside down kiss thing is not unusual and and we made the argument which convinced them to let us do it which was that look we're trying to subvert expectations. So having that kiss happen with Black Cat, um, as opposed to Mary Jane, um, subverts expectations and also makes it clear that, you know, we're not operating in the same universe here. Um, and they bought that, which was a pleasant surprise, honestly, um, because oftentimes you get a note like that and no matter what kind of logic you use, they're just, we don't care, just don't do it. But they didn't, you know, they heard us, listened to us, and said, you know, you're right, go for it. And we did. It was a very fun first kiss, and kind of twisted also, because she was using it to distract him from the fact that she was stealing a priceless diamond. Well, you say that, but the truth is, she had already stolen that. So she was having some fun there. So she kisses him, and, you know, this isn't during the heist. This is after the heist. It's in the epilogue. And she kisses him, and she, over his shoulder, is looking at it. But she didn't have to pull it out at that moment at all. It's not like she stole it from him. It's not like she picked his pocket. Yeah. She'd already taken it. And so she's just having a little fun of her own. You know, just that sense of danger she gets by... Uh, kissing him, and she's attracted to him. Um, so it's not just a distraction. She's actually kind of into him. Um, she doesn't know he's only 16. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but she's kind of into him. And she's only 19 in our version of it, so she's not that much older, but still it's a big three years between 16 and 19, a big three years. And um, But she doesn't know that. So she's kind of into him, but there's got to be a little bit that's twisted about her, you know, a little bit that likes that sense of danger because she knows if she, if he saw her with that, he'd be like, you got to get that back. I can't let you keep it because he's a Boy Scout when push comes to shove. And she knows that, and yet she pulls it out of whatever little pocket she's got it in to look at it so she can enjoy the kiss and enjoy her little victory over him simultaneously. <laughs> um, Love that. She doesn't have to do it. This isn't the moment where she stole it. She stole it somewhere back on the boat or on the dock or whatever, and we're up on a skyscraper sometime later when this moment takes place. She's just having fun. And taking the risk seems to be 
some of the, what is fun for her. And she's a very fun character. I definitely enjoyed her very much in this episode and in her next two appearances, which we'll hopefully get to sometime within the next decade. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so but yeah, it was a really fun episode. And uh, like I said, I just love that Peter. There was a, a twist of Peter's first kiss. He sort of did this something similar in Young Justice. I mean, Megan and uh, Superboy had their first kiss under some pretty twisted circumstances also, especially uh, the get-ups that they were currently in. <laughs> Speaking of Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we use the comics in Young Justice also to sort of give them a number of first kisses. So you have that moment uh, in... Uh, uh, Downtime in episode eight of Young Justice. We're getting a little sidetracked here, but you know where you know she's dumped all those groceries on him, and she's cleaning them off, and they get really close. And did they or didn't they? You know, we cut away. Red Tornado comes in, and he's back by the television set, and she's cleaning up in the kitchen. And it's like, did they or didn't they? And Red Tornado just sort of leaves without commenting, and we have no idea. And then we, in the comics, we showed a moment where. Um, she needed to give him mouth to mouth uh, underwater um, to give him oxygen. So they're sort of kissing, but really it's mouth to mouth. So it kind of doesn't count. Um, and then, of course, you have the kiss in, uh, in terrors um, where, yeah, they're both posing as brother and sister, Tommy and Tuppence Terror. And uh, I suppose <laughs> Junior calls them out on it. And then she transforms and he realizes that he's been duped and she's Miss Martian and all that stuff. So, um, Diff- yeah, different show, but I have to ask, did anyone have any raise any issues over that? I've been curious for years. You mean, uh, at the studio? Yeah. yeah the studio network? Network? at the, uh, at the, uh, incest imagery, even if it was only there for a moment. No, I mean, you know, I think everyone thought it was funny. Um, it was know, hilarious. You're, you're, He's kissing his sister, but but at that point, you know, no one in the audience is fooled. High school junior is fooled because he doesn't know that she's Miss Martian and that, that Superboy. But the audience is a hundred percent clear that uh, um, that that's who they are. Um, it's not like we showed that image. You know, we actually the more risque one happens later in the season where you see Black Canary kissing Superboy. And the audience doesn't immediately know that that's Black Canary. Turns out to be Miss Martian, but uh, in this instance, the audience 100% knows that that's Miss Martian. Um, so it's it didn't even. I mean, I, as far as I know, everyone liked it. We said in any event, we didn't get any notes on it. And again, trying to sort of bring the conversation full circle for the kids. The kids know you know, that that's not really his sister. And so they find it funny. It's funny on that level for them. They don't need to go into questions of incest and stuff like that. They don't know about that. They don't need to know about that. They just know that, you know, Icicle thinks that's his sister, but they know it's not. And so it's funny. It was hilarious. Well, I think we're about ready to wrap things up. Are there any projects you want to promote? Well, you know, I always want to promote my novels, Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam. Uh, they're the first two books in a in a in my own book series, uh, in addition to the World of Warcraft series that I'm working on. And uh, again, if you like Spectacular Spider-Man, if you like Young Justice, and especially Gargoyles, I do think you'd like this series. I urge your readers to check them out. You can buy the books, actual paperback editions of the books, order them on Amazon or uh, go into any bookstore if they don't happen to be on the shelf the day you walk in. You can go to the front desk and they can order them for you. You can also get the ebook version of it on Amazon, download it to your Kindle or iPad or whatever. Um, and then, of course, there's the Reign of the Ghost audio play, which I'm very proud of. It's not a standard audio book with one narrator. It's a full cast, uh, unabridged version of Reign of the Ghosts. Um, with 20 actors playing 30 roles, uh, full original musical score, sound effects. It's really like a four-hour movie in your head um, with tremendous performers, many from including Josh Keaton, who played Spider-Man, 
um, Ed Asner, who played Uncle Ben, um, and uh, uh, Steve Bloom, who played Chameleon, and Vanessa Marshall, who plays Mary Jane, um, and a number of other terrific actors from both from series I've done before, like Gargoyles and Young Justice, and also people, um, some new people. And I really think it's great. I know I'm biased, but I'm, I couldn't be prouder of all the work that so many people put into it. And that's available for download now um, on a website called gumroad.com, uh, G-U-M-R-O-A-D, gumroad.com, slash reign of the ghost. And Reign of the Ghosts is spelled R-A-I-N, Reign of uh, Ghosts, plural. Um, so gumroad.com slash Reign of the Ghosts, you can get it there, download it there now. And I uh, really hope your listeners will. I hope so, too. I listen to it. It's incredible. And I look forward to uh, getting my uh, the hard copy when when because uh, I contributed to the Kickstarter. And I'm so far well worth worth my contribution it's a great production and then uh today um when we're recording this i don't know when this uh this will go up but today as we're recording it the fifth issue of starbrand and night mask uh came out today uh in comic book stores and and available as an e-comic as well and uh really proud of it it's the penultimate issue of this first starbrand and night mask arc and uh, I think it's got some really funny moments in it and some exciting stuff and um, a pretty shocking conclusion. So I think people should check out Starbright and Night Mask. I'll check that out the first chance I get. And I understand also Gargoyles is sort of making a small return to comics. Granted, it's a Sinistory, but... Yeah, we did a Sinistory adaptation that comes out uh, uh, not too long from now. I think... Uh, next month um, uh, that adapts the first five episodes, the Gargoyles pilot, uh, into a Sinister story. I edited it myself, so it's uh, it's as true to the show as it could possibly be. Um, and uh, I think it, it really turned out pretty great. And uh, it's sort of a way to test the waters for uh, Joe Books, who has the license for Gargoyles comics, and uh, we're hoping that it leads to both more Sinister stories, but also original, more original comics set in the Gargoyles universe. That's what I'm definitely hoping for. Fingers crossed for that. I mean, I know a lot of people who are clamoring for more Gargoyles, so that would be really awesome. Well, again, you know, I, I don't want to tell people they need to spend money, but the truth is, is that the best way to guarantee we get more Gargoyles comics is for this Sinister story volume to sell because then that'll indicate to both Joe Books and to Disney, oh, we got something here. Um, you know, if this sort of story doesn't tell, it doesn't absolutely eliminate the possibility of other Gargoyles comics, but it makes it tougher. Um, well, I've got, well, I've got my copy on pre-order, and I already know what Angel's getting for her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> or am I not surprised? <laughs> All right. Well, it was great having you on, Greg. Thanks. Thank you once again for doing this. Happy to do it. Talk to you guys next time. All right. All right. And um, listeners, tune in next month, hopefully, when we discuss uh, The Sinister Six. Ooh. Ooh, that'll be fun. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. It's just a little right. therapy session. You can't expect a true gourmet to settle for mere fish flambe. My diet screams for triple star beluga caviar. And cream by any other name cannot compare with French champagne. So pop the cork and tip your hat. A toast to me, fat cat. I want the best of everything. Crowns and diamond rings Servants at my beck and call I'll make them crawl You know I want it all My velvet tux is tailor-made Embroidered silk and jewel brocade My good taste is so refined I demand the top of the line Only hand-crushed Greek volcanic rocks 
Word. How about scram? Or two words. Scram kid. Or 17. Get out of my office in 2.3 seconds or I'll staple you to a flagpole. I think she's having a fangirl moment. Shush, I'm, I'm quietly fangirling. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Considering we'll my daughter's name. My daughter's named after Demona. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Your daughter's named Demona? Uh, her name's Angel. I couldn't get my husband to agree to Demona, so I got Angel <laughs> instead. <laughs> that works. I think it's better for her, too. Yeah, well, it's also better for my Catholic family, who would be like, what's Demona? Does that mean demon? <laughs> well, to be fair, it does. Well, it does, yes, but I still love the name. So I, su I suggested Angel to my husband. He goes, oh, that's great. And it's like, I get what I want. <laughs> 